you. Good to see you tonight. Were you just looking for a warm place? Wanted to save, save money on your heating bill? I'm glad you're here tonight, whatever the circumstances. And I know they're more noble than that. Proverbs chapter 16 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and our 3,000-year journey through the Scriptures. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and if you just wave and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands this evening and make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight if you don't own one. So Proverbs chapter 16, I see the Lord, He's filled His candy dish back up and for us this week. The preparations, or really the ideas, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And so man can come up with all of his plans, all of his ideas, all of his thoughts to advance uh, the kingdom of God in this world. And, uh, but the fact that people heed that plan and want to say yes to becoming a part of that plan, all of that comes from God. Without God's amen being added to any plan that we have, that plan is dead, has no life. It's the fact that we plan, and then in that plan, God says, I'm pleased with that. And then when other people hear that plan, He gives life to it in their hearts is the only way our plans become anything significant in terms of what we consider to be the most important thing in the world, and that is the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world. And so we prepare a plan. We're free to do that. But how people respond to that plan, certainly concerning God's work, that's all in his hands. Verse 2, all the ways of of a man are pure in his own eyes. Isn't it great when you can reach a place in your life where you can admit you're wrong? For some people, that happens when they're like four years old, and then other people are still working on it at like 40 and 70. But ultimately, the Lord gets us there, and it's a good place to come to where we can admit that we were wrong. There's just something about us, this fallen nature, where um, we can justify things, we can rationalize things, we can look at things from such a skewed perspective that even something that's wrong, something that would warrant an apology from our life, uh, we can still uh, work things around in our minds that uh, our ways are pure in our own eyes. So there's so much in us that we can't uh, see ourselves, our selfishness, our impure motivations. But thankfully, there's hope here, and that is that the Lord weighs the spirits or weighs our motives. Psalm 19, David wrote and said, Who can understand his errors? He said to the Lord, Cleanse me from secret faults. And so praise the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes into our life, and then he begins to work in our life to cleanse our motives, not just our outward actions, but then he cleanses our motives. So, we're, so we become brand new Christians. For some of you, that was a month ago. For some of you, that was a long, long time ago. But we all remember it. 
We become a new Christian and God begins to make all of these changes in our lives. I mean, we really, he gets our act together. It's really very impressive. And so much of what he's doing is on the outside. We stop doing this and we stop doing that and we start doing this and all these things. And it's magnificent and so much change occurs in terms of who and what we are outwardly and how we present ourselves, what we're doing, what we're not doing, that we'll think, boy, that people talk about taking a lifetime to be sanctified and we marvel. I don't know what track you're on, but I think I'm just about there in three weeks. God's changed so many things. And sometimes we think that all of these changes are the most significant thing or the hardest thing that God is going to do in our lives is to get us to stop doing these obviously sinful things and then start doing some of these very elementary things like being kind to people and loving people and being good to people, and that's the extent of it. And then one day the Lord puts his finger on some attitude inside of our life or some motive behind why we do what we do. And then we realize that holiness isn't just about how I can present myself outwardly, but God is interested in making me holy all the way into my core, into the very motives. Not only that I would do the right thing, but that I would do the right thing for the right reason. I can do the right thing outwardly, even spiritually, what is right spiritually, but I can do it for self, selfish motives. Maybe they'll make me a deacon or an usher or they'll make me an elder or I'll get noticed or what. There's all kinds of goofy motives inside of there. God begins to work on doing what we do out of a motive to greatest commandments of loving God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength, and loving our neighbors, ourself. It's interesting, the Bible says that one day, why would he bother with our motives? Or is he just happy with what he cleans up on the outside? Well, the Bible says that one day, when we stand before Jesus and, and stand before him as a Christian, that one day our works are going to be tested, not our salvation. We get into heaven on the basis of it's a free gift because of our faith in Christ. But all of the service that we do for the Lord, I talk about myself. I've served the Lord from probably uh, day eight after becoming a Christian. And God, the Bible says he's going to test those works for what sort they are. In other words, what's the motive behind doing all the things that I do? If you've ever been in a church or any kind of a spiritual environment, one that claims to be associated with Christ, and you've got motivation for what people are doing on the basis of something other than a love for God and a love for you, that's a pretty sickening environment. I mean, it's just a Christian version of the flesh, you know, in terms of what's going on out there. And so God, one day, he's going to test, Jesus is going to test my motives. I'll just personalize it toward me. He's going to test not only my works, all the things that I've done for him or attempted to do for him, but he will say, I'm going to test it on an even deeper level. What was your motive? And he'll sort between, oh, that was done for you, so you could be seen, so you could be this, so you could be that. We'll just put that over here in a pile over here. <laughs> you see him, 80%. 
right over here. You know, now you're left with 20. And then the Bible teaches that only what's done out of the motive of love is what is going to survive related to the eternal reward. So, of course, he's going to work on our motives for why we do what we do because he wants that reward to be great. But he can't be really seen or powerfully seen in our lives if the motives are impure. There's no anointing. There's no amen of the Holy Spirit to that kind of a life, is there? But when the motive is right and the actions and the words are right, now we've got something powerful. Now we're living the life of Christ. And so he works hard to refine our motives. And he is very, very (laughs) good at revealing our hearts and our motives to us, not to just give us one of these, though he can do that, but uh, to get us to... Uh, have higher motives for what we do in his name. Verse 3, commit, literally roll over your works to the Lord and your thoughts, that is your desires, will be established. So the idea is when we submit our plans, we submit our activities uh, to the Lord and to his will, then we can um, have the absolute confidence that uh, that his desire uh, and, and his will for our lives are going to be accomplished. So I said, Lord, here's my plan. Here's what I want. But what I want most of all is for your will to be done here. And when that's uh, in, in our hearts and a part of our desire, uh, then we know that we can have the confidence that he will accomplish his will. And that's probably quite a confidence to have in life. Verse 4, the Lord has made all for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Now, this proverb is important not to misunderstand this one because the proverb isn't saying that God created certain men to be equal, I mean to be wicked, and thus as a result of their wickedness to be doomed. Men and women are damned ultimately based upon their own decision. But what this proverb does teach is that God is sovereign over all, even the wicked. And he'll make everything to praise him one day, ultimately. We think about God, we think about his sovereignty or his almightiness. And we think about it in terms of God's people, his kingdom. And we say, yes, of course, he's sovereign over his people. But I mean, in terms of the wickedness of the world and what the wicked do, I mean, he... He can't get all that to praise him and, and to honor and glorify him. Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is that he does. Nobody ultimately gets away with anything in this life. And if a person doesn't receive judgment for wickedness in this life, then they will in the life to come. And so all of human history is going to come to God's appointed end. That will include the judgment of the wicked. And, uh, and that's all a part of his plan. And it will speak to his power and his wisdom and his love. Not quite as much as the salvation of the righteous or those that want to be saved. But it will still speak to his nature and to his greatness. I like the verse on Psalm 76.10 that speaks to this issue. And David wrote and said, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. That's how much God is able to make everything to praise him ultimately. He will even make the wrath of man to praise him. 
Again, as we looked at last week or the week before in Philippians chapter 2, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every, everyone is, even the wrath of man shall praise the Lord. Verse 5, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Wow, that's a strong word, abomination, isn't it? Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, these proud people, these proud groups, none will go unpunished. And this speaks of the ungodly who kind of glory in their proud rebellion against God. Think about how many groups today, just in our country, we don't even have to count them up around the world. Think about how many people are proud of their anti-God um, positions, their anti-God morality, uh, they're anti, uh, they, they are so proud of the fact that they're throwing off God's morality, his definitions of right and wrong, poking God in the eye as if it could be done, you know, uh, over and over again. And how, as, as you hit, uh, as the nation becomes more and more post-Christian and we become more and more of a mi- minority, then these groups begin to discover one another. They begin to unify with one another. And you've got this whole thing uh, going on. They join forces in their rebellion against God. And yet God says none of them will go uh, unpunished. God will have the final say at the judgment seat of Christ and uh, the white throne judgment one day. Nobody's going to get away uh, with anything. I always think about with this proverb, I think about the battle of Armageddon, the joining forces of the proud, uh, those who are in proud rebellion against God. In the battle of Armageddon, there's going to be a great army that's going to come um, out of Europe, a great army that is going to come out of uh, the east, out of Asia, another great army that is going to come uh, from the north, uh, out of uh, the area of Russia, up in the uttermost north. And these three are going to come into the valley of Megiddo um, to fight one another. They hate each other. They want to annihilate one another. And yet when Jesus comes at his second coming... He will make his way to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem by way of the Valley of Megiddo. And when he appears there in the sight of these three great armies, they will set aside their hatred for one another and their hatred for God is even greater, unite together to fight against the Lord. And Jesus, he will speak something out of his mouth. The sword will come forth from his mouth. The sword speaks of words so often in scriptures. He'll say something and all three armies will be completely destroyed. And the piles of, of the casualties will be as high as a horse's bridle in the Valley of Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo or the Jezreel Valley runs 164 miles That's the size of the armies that come to fight one another. And then they unite together to rebel against God. I really call it the unbattle of Armageddon. Isn't like Jesus breaks a sweat or he has to have like a power bar before he comes back or something like this is going to be hard. I don't even know that it takes more than five seconds. We come back with him at that time. And then he comes into Jerusalem and he establishes reign. 
It is a folly to unite together in rebellion against God. But sometimes there are people comfort one another. Look at how many of us there are. <laughs> There's only one God. Yeah, but that one God is trouble <laughs> for the unrighteous. Verse 6, in mercy and truth, and the idea is God's mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Atonement, in the New Testament sense, atonement is a wonderful word to learn. Sometimes you think, oh, that's a big word. But atonement, um, it means at one And it's because of God's mercy and his truth and sending his son to die upon that cross is a full and satisfying payment for our sins that we can have at one mint, not just the forgiveness of our sins, but we can be at one mint and have a relationship with God. That all happens because of God's mercy and because of his truth. And it's the two things, isn't it? People want a God today. This is the thing that we fight against so much now. Again, in our cultures, things are moving in the direction that they're moving. And God, people want, if they want to believe in God, they want to believe very strongly that he's merciful and gracious. It's funny that how, how we know that we need that. <laughs> but that whole truth side of things, that this God saves on the basis of truth and that grace and mercy that isn't based in truth is valueless, that's lost on the culture more and more. The Bible says Jesus was full of grace and truth and we beheld His glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It wasn't just His grace that saved us but his truth, that he was the fulfillment of all of those prophetic passages, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He has the truth concerning salvation. He speaks the truth about our need to be saved. And so this wonderful combination of things, atonement in God's mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And then what's our response once we're saved? By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Our response to say, Lord, you have not only forgiven me, but you've given me at one minute. I get a relation. I get to have a relationship with you. How many people wanted to be your friend in elementary school or in high school or what? even right now? You say a lot of them. Well... I'll be the judge of that. This is my illustration. <laughs> Think about that, how much God, or God wants to be our friend, allows us to be his friend. And then the response to that is, of course, Lord, I want to reverence you now so much that I will fear you enough to depart from evil. Verse 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, this is one of those Proverbs, and there are quite a number of them, uh, the Proverbs that is generally true. They aren't always uh, exactly true in every situation. Uh, they're a, a general truth related uh, to life, but it does have exceptions. And the idea is that if we live to please the Lord, then oftentimes even our enemies 
will experience the blessings from our life as a result of our walking with God. And then out of the blessing of our treatment of them, it will cause them to have a change of heart about us. And it's funny how people can just be so hate you as a Christian or so avoid you or whatever that kind of thing is. And then you don't change your um, attitude toward them. And one day the Lord works something, you know, where, what is it? Is it the lion that got the thorn in his foot or the elephant or something and the mouse took it out? So, you know, the big, here's the big shot. Finally, one day he needs somebody to pull a thorn out of his foot, so to speak. And then it is your relationship with God and what God has made you into that you then introduce into this person's life. They're blessed by it. Something good happens in their life as a result of it. And their whole attitude changes in one second towards you. And it happens all of the time. But it takes patience to wait for that moment, doesn't it? So you don't kill them uh, in the meantime. Verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. And so this speaks to the satisfaction that we feel by virtue of earning an honest living, uh, by uh, living a life of integrity as opposed to living a life of crime or living a life of, of dishonesty. And so integrity of heart before God. I put my head down on the pillow at night, and I know that I'm right with God, that's a rich person. Uh, the, our, our culture doesn't uh, measure riches that way, but God does, and he knows what he's talking about. That's a rich person, much richer than the person who has tons of money, and they are living a life of crime. Verse 9, a man's heart uh, plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So it's good to plan. It's certainly okay to plan. But again, we need to let God direct our plans as he desires and uh, let him alone determine whether those plans ever come to pass. Remember when I was a new Christian, I, um, I came into contact with a certain section of professing Christianity um, that really looked down on people that would pray to God and say, Thy will be done. They just, for whatever reason, they just didn't, they didn't like that at all. And uh, for them, they had all of these promises in the Bible, and God had supplied these promises to them like you just put bullets in a revolver, you know, that God has given so you can hold it to God's head and then make him give you the promise. All right, this is the promise I'm holding to your head. Now you give it to me. So pretty uh, hostile, adversarial kind of relationship with God. But they viewed that as kind of a, 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 a wimpy way or a wrong way to pray. We could be, uh, that, that, that uh, we could be much more aggressive in our prayers than that. It shouldn't be that passive of, thy will be done. Except that Jesus taught us to pray that in the Lord's Prayer. You can't pray a better prayer than, thy will be done. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he's crucified. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus prayed that prayer. And so it's a fabulous prayer. It's wonderful. We can plan. We can ask. We can whatever. But 
ultimately, our plans are always submitted to his. It's always Lord willing. And his plans for our lives are always the very, very best. And when God says no to our plan, he says, oh, man. I thought that was the best thing I could pray. That was the best thing that could happen. And then God doesn't do it. He does something different. And then you just wait and you see how much better his plan is. He never says no to a plan of ours except that he has a better plan. But sometimes it takes a day or two or longer for us to see that. Divination, verse 10, is on the lips of the king. In other words, he carries uh, divine power or great Uh, power and weight, his decision-making. His mouth must not transgress in judgment. And so here is the words of a king. They're powerful. They carry a finality to them concerning the issue that's being addressed. And so uh, it's uh, so important, uh, Solomon is writing, that his judgments uh, be righteous. And if that's true of a secular king, it's certainly true uh, of us as uh, Christians and certainly as leaders in the kingdom of God. The Bible says that to whom much is given, much is required. Well, I tell you, I, one day when I stand before the Lord, there's going to be a lot required. God's given me this position. This is a, to pastor a church. It's very significant. And if a, if a secular king has to be careful. He's just representing himself and a kingdom to make sure that his decisions are, are, are proper. How much more those of us who are leaders in the kingdom of God. Verse 11, honest weights and scales are the Lord's and all the weights in the bag are his work. And so we've seen this earlier in the book of Proverbs, God just desiring honesty in business. And so he will bless honesty and to use dishonest business practices is not only a sin against the person that we're trying to sell this car to or this whatever service to them, but it's also a sin against God. And we shouldn't, uh, we wouldn't want to do that. Certainly as Christians, he's forbidding it for everyone. So certainly um, it's true of us. Verse 12, it's an abomination for kings to commit wickedness. For a throne is established by righteousness. So the idea is that those who are in a position of power or authority, they should hold themselves to a very, very high standard, higher standard than even the citizens of their kingdom because uh, their lives and their decisions and their example uh, affect so many. So it's a wise ruler, Solomon says, who understands that the greatest thing that he can do uh, to establish or make secure their position is to live a righteous life and make righteous decisions. And uh, by that comparison, we're in deep trouble. Um, There's a number of years ago where we... The debate began, I don't know, two or three presidents ago, where people began to talk openly about uh, compartmentalizing among uh, the highest office in our land, which is uh, being the president. They say, well, as long, whatever he does in his personal life, uh, that doesn't make any difference as long as he conducts himself properly as a president. And so, uh, and he makes good decisions and those kind of things, is if you can divorce those two things. Uh, those things are absolutely interwoven. Who and what we are inside is always going to affect 
our decision-making. And so here is this uh, important uh, commendation to or uh, encouragement to leaders about the importance of righteousness, the stability that it brings to their reign as a result of that. Righteous lips are a delight of kings, and they love him who speaks what is right. And so here is a king where uh, good leaders and good kings, they delight in uh, advisors that will tell them the truth, will be very straightforward in their opinion when, when it's asked for about how to handle something and do something. And uh, rather than uh, being a king or a leader who uh, surrounds themselves with people who were there just to flatter him uh, or a bunch of yes men. Verse 14, as messengers of death... Is a king is the king's wrath because a king in the ancient days he had the power to kill, but a wise man will appease it. That, that means he won't provoke a king's wrath unnecessarily. He will appease it, and so um, if the power and the authority of kings is to be feared, of course, for us in the bigger picture, how much more should man fear the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And of course, how do we appease? Uh, that king, how do we please him? By putting our faith in his son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Verse 15. And the light of the king's face is life. And his favor is like the cloud of, a la- of the latter rain. A latter rain. They did a lot of dry farming in Israel in those days. So that latter rain would be that April rain, that final bit of rainfall that would assure a really good crop. And so uh, when the light of a king's face, when he's happy, he's got a bright countenance, it's always a blessing to everyone uh, all around. And so uh, my mother-in-law, we know her affectionately as Mimi and as mom, but she's got a little saying she's saying uh, uh, more and more these days, a happy wife makes a happy life. I don't know why she loves that so much. I don't think she's trying to tell me anything. But I don't know my motives either. So, but the idea is that when the king's happy, then everybody is happy. It's going to translate into a blessing for everyone. How much better to get wisdom than gold? Wow. There goes the economy. We were over at Stone Ridge Mall last night. I thought I was at an airport. It was so crowded. I haven't seen lines like that. It just took, it took a lot for me to cut to the front in all those places and get my... There's so, so many people. I never saw a store for wisdom. And, there, and yet it's more valuable than gold. And to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. So what could be better than silver or gold? Wisdom and understanding. What could, can you imagine? Some of you don't have to imagine, but most of us have to imagine this. Imagine if you had unbelievable amounts of silver and gold, limitless wealth, but you lacked wisdom and understanding in life. on how to use it in a meaningful way, how to spend that money. 
If you had all of that wealth and you lacked wisdom and understanding, all you would do then with all of that wealth is just to get yourself into more, even more trouble than you're already in. All of that wealth means nothing without wisdom and without understanding because all we'll do is we will self-destruct faster than we normally would because we have the wealth to do that. And so you may not have two quarters to rub together in your pocket here tonight, but you've got God's wisdom and your understanding. God says, hey, listen, don't be envying this group over here, looking down on how rich you are. You are fabulously rich. Riches can be gone in an instant. Godly wisdom and understanding, that can never be taken away from us. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. So evil is on a dirt road going in this direction with lots of potholes. And then the highway of the upright is a super highway going in the very opposite direction. (laughs) The idea is get on that highway. Whatever direction wickedness is going in and wicked people are going in, Get on the road that takes you in the opposite direction. He who preserves his way preserves his own soul. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so here we have the danger of pride. It always leads to humiliation. It always leads to a downfall. And it can even lead to destruction. And so the, the, the danger of pride, the danger of a haughty uh, spirit. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And so this proverb extols humility and encourages us to associate with the humble, not with the proud, however profitable uh, materially uh, associating with the proud might be in a given age. The importance of associating uh, with the humble. Uh, the future is there. That's the place of blessing. The other life, it looks pleasing on television. It looks pleasing from a distance. But God says the blessing of life is found with humble people. That is not a complicated place to live. That's where you want to be. He who heeds the word wisely will find good. In other words, uh, obedience to God's word always leads to a good life. And whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. I'll tell you, I'm happy. (laughs) And it's the truth, isn't it? Whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. And I know that we are. Verse 21, the wise in heart will be called uh, prudent. And the idea is that ultimately wisdom gets recognized and valued by others when it's in a person's life. And sweetness of the lips increases learning. And this is the idea that teaching that is well put or attractively put, it makes learning easier as opposed to like this angry, uh, vengeful uh, presentation of the truth and certainly of the gospel. Sometimes you see these things on television where um, members of our military are coming back for memorial services and these people that profess to know Christ have these terrible signs or um, they go to, you know, Um, gay parades and carry these unbelievable 
terrible representation of the heart of God, the placards that they make and all. So they're trying to get a, a message across, but they don't understand what is um, being spoken in this proverb for sure. And they're not understanding a lot of things, certainly not the heart of God. Then NASB translates this, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And it's the truth. Sometimes a spoonful of sugar does help the medicine go down. And you, and you, this thing called winsomeness is very, very attractive in a teacher. And I'm, I'm trying to learn it late in life here. Um, I remember when we did the apologetics conference a couple of years ago, and um, the name of it slipping my mind that we had. But as a part of their, they have all these apologists that come in. They do these day-long kind of seminars, fabulous speakers and content and all of this. And um, Veritas is the name of it. But I know that one of their goals of their speakers is that they would be winsome in the presentation of the truth, that they'd be pleasant people. You know, apologetics, is a, that's a special place to... Uh, to serve the Lord really is. And you look at the people, the apologists are the most effective. They have a winsome spirit. Norm Geisler kills me. I've seen him on so many interviews and different things. You can't upset him. Listen, when, when you are, when you know that the Bible is true, and that God can't be wrong, and that he's always right. You don't have to get angry in a debate. You just have to present God's side of things. Think about Ravi Zacharias, where he gets in these environments, college campuses, so many of these you can watch on YouTube, you know, and you see people get up antagonistic toward him and this and that. He is so winsome. He's so sweet in how he comes back. He says everything that needs to be said, everything that needs to be said, to properly represent the Lord and to get that person to think in a way that they wouldn't think. But you walk away and you got that one person, but there's 5,000 other people in the auditorium and they walk away and they say, I wanted to hate that guy when I left. But you know what? I kind of liked him. And that goes a long way in terms of what the Holy Spirit can make of that related uh, to the truth. And so a sweet disposition, it's always better than a sour or an angry one. Not just for apologists, but really for all of us uh, as Christians. Verse 22, understanding is a wellspring or a fountain of life to him who has it, but the correction of fools is folly. And so wisdom, the idea is, brings a continual flow of blessings into our life. And then on the other hand, folly brings a continual flow uh, of correction. And a fool's folly, Solomon says, is its own punishment. And it really is. Verse 23, the heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds learning to his lips. In other words, the wise man or the wise person is disciplined concerning his speech. He doesn't just let anything come out of his mouth. And as a result of that, he knows before something comes out of his mouth that is going to be valuable uh, to the hearer. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb. You could say like a snicker bar uh, for today, something sweet. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. 
And so pleasant words, encouragement. What a, the power of encouragement today, how we need it. The Bible talks of some people have a gift of encouragement. Oh, don't let that ever die in the body of Christ if it's in your life. How we need encouragement and the sweetness that uh, encouragement and words of encouragement and blessing uh, and uh, brings into people's lives, the healing that it brings into lives, the power of encouragement. And so these, some of these coming together, speaking about, um, you know, the importance of, of people hearing this kind of things from our lives uh, as, as well, receiving that. There's a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way of death. And we saw this back in chapter 14, verse 12. So if anything violates the word of God, then it's wrong, no matter whether I think it's right or the whole world thinks it's right. And, uh, and to look at the end, where does this, this uh, way that seems right, look, again, look at the lives of people that have been on that path longer than you've been on that path. What does this turn into in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years? What does it make of a human being? And you look and say, wow, nobody ever sees 50 years on that path because they die of an overdose at 15 years. Or they die of health complications, cirrhosis of the liver because at at 25 years, or whatever it might be on the path. One of the things I love about Christianity, you look at people, the longer they're on that path, the more beautiful the life is. Even when I was a kid, I used to like, I just have always liked older people um, in the church that we spent some time in, in growing up. Their lives were so attractive uh, to me. And it's, it's this, uh, you know, beautiful uh, test of what... Uh, what does that path produce in a person? There's a way that seems right to a man. Lots of people think this is the truth. Lots of people think this is the way. But, man, if people are dying premature deaths or terrible deaths or sad deaths at the end of it, then it's not the way. The person who labors, labors for himself. Uh, in other words, this is the person that he has a job, but he doesn't do it to better the company. I don't care if the company makes a profit or doesn't or the owner prospers or any of that thing. The only reason I come to this job is because it buys me three square meals a day. Oh, okay, Perky. Have you seen a couple of the earlier Proverbs that we were talking about here in the... For his hunger, for his hungry mouth drives him on. And this is an interesting thing. It's foreign to me. I have many other faults, but I don't, I don't have this one. And the idea is that hunger will make uh, a certain kind of person work and be glad for the work when nothing else will. And of course, Paul writes about this and he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone will not work, doesn't mean that they cannot work, that's a different situation, they will not work, then neither shall they eat. Uh, Appetite, hunger is a powerful motivation uh, for work and it's the only motivation some people know, unfortunately. An ungodly man digs up evil and it is on his lips like a burning fire. And so verses 27 through 30 refer to troublemakers of various kinds. But we're going to stop without getting into verse 27 and pick up there next week. Tonight we want to enjoy 
the Lord's Supper as well as a part of our service.